Thank you. If you have your Bibles with you, um, let's have a look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Lord, please speak to us as we look at this wonderful psalm. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by it, but also to be challenged by it, that we will spend more time by the stream, so to speak, that we will draw from the resources that you've given us, that we will also be strong and healthy and stable on a spiritual level. We ask for your blessing, Lord, and your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Walking where the world walks and standing where sinners stand and sitting where the mockers sit feels like it should be a secure place because surely there's safety in numbers. We were just having a discussion at the front there. Why, why us? You know, why would the Lord choose us if we were to go and do a survey of what people are doing this evening? Uh, we would find that a tiny minority of the people in the United Kingdom are actually listening to the Word of God uh, or even giving it a moment's thought. And so we're a tiny minority. And what's interesting too is that in our culture, the last group that you can still mock with impunity is Christians. And we might imagine then that it would be safer to be amongst the mockers rather than amongst the mocked. This psalm tells us exactly the opposite, that blessing is with those who are being mocked. If they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to mock us, and Jesus warned us about that. It's mainly because we're out of step with the world, and we take a stand on our biblical principles. And so we are the subject of mockery and humor. And you can get away with it even on mainstream television. You can get away with it in books and newspaper articles. It's okay as long as you don't mock anyone else and you focus your mockery on believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So why, why is that? What's so funny about us? Let's just take a, an honest look at why, because when we take the Word of God as our guide, people imagine that what we're doing is we're building our life 
on ancient words. So out of date as to be so old-fashioned to have no value anymore. And yet exactly the opposite is true. Let's have a look at a few examples. So we, we believe that the universe has a creator and a designer. And the world believes that the universe happened by itself. And we are the ones that are anti-science. We also believe that God designed and made all forms of life. And the world believes that life was a lucky collision of molecules that then evolved into zebras, elephants, and us with more lucky collisions of molecules. Evolution didn't just adapt the species to their environment, it actually created them in the first place. So there's no need for God. So we are going against popular opinion. We believe that creation and ultimately man have a purpose. That's what the ancient words tell us. The world believes there's no purpose. Long-term value is missing from our lives. And we are the ones that are naive and insecure, so we need God to give our lives meaning. We also believe that God sets the moral rules of our behavior, and the world believes we can make up our own rules. So we are anti-choice. We believe that Jesus was God himself visiting the earth to rescue us from our sin, and the world believes that Jesus was deluded and used his name as a swear word. And so we as his followers, naturally, are also delusional. So being anti-science and anti-evolution and anti-popular culture and naive and insecure and anti-choice and delusional, that's what makes us pretty unpopular in the world. So it won't matter how many shoeboxes we send or how many food banks we fund, we'll be seen at best as do-gooders. It's amazing how you can take the term doing good and make it negative. We're do-gooders, we're out of touch. And that's at best, at worst, we're stifling and objectionable. How do you feel about this? Does it bring a little joy to your heart to know that we're different? Or does it make you feel a little bit isolated and slightly doubtful as to whether or not we're really building our lives on a true foundation? It's no exaggeration to say that Jesus expected the disciples to be hated. Luke 21 verse 7, he warns his disciples, everyone will hate you because of me. And it's always been thus. And so we come to the oldest hymn in the book, to Psalm 1. Why that one to start off the whole hymn book of the Old Testament? Perhaps it's, it's there because it reminds us of the enormous value of the Word of God. And that without it, we will basically dry up and wither. We are totally dependent on the food and drink of the Word. Philippians 3, 
verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who we've been learning in the mornings is the way, the truth, and the life. We've discovered a path to life. And few there be that find it. What an incredible privileged position we have tonight. It does bring joy to my heart that the world hates us. It hated Jesus. And, and we should be evidently different. And we should be following the way, the truth, and the life. Blessed is a man that doesn't live in the way of the world, but lives in the world of the way. What we experience then is not just, it's not just a prejudice against an opinion. It's actually fundamentally racism. See, we were people of the earth. And we're not anymore. We're now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We live by heaven's standards. We submit to heaven's authority. So if we are not very different... We're probably not very good ambassadors for our land. So our characteristics that we learn from Scripture should define us. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Along with constancy, determination, confidence, no fear of death, selflessness, prayerfulness, and personal holiness. Then another characteristic of the true believer is this, this thirst and this love for the Word of God. Here it is. Now, the first thing you notice about it is it's quite thick. There's a lot of chapters in there, even at even at a chapter a day, it'll take you three years to read all the way through it. If this is a hoax, it's an awful thick one. The next question you might ask about it is, how much money did they make writing all this? And then we discover they didn't make any money. That wasn't why they wrote it. They wanted to introduce us to the living God and build a relationship between ordinary human beings and the eternal almighty God. Let me just say that again, because this is, it's kind of mind-blowing to try and take this in on a Sunday night when you're already tired. The Bible was written in order to introduce ordinary human beings to the almighty eternal God and actually turn us into sons of the living God. That's why the Bible was written. There's 66 books by 40 separate authors. If it was fiction, that was a high-risk strategy, trying to get 40 different authors to stick to the plot. And yet, you see, rather than inconsistencies and disagreements, 
you see the holiness of God and the love of God and the standards of God and the wrath of God woven through every one of these books. And it all ties together beautifully. And the Old Testament predicts the New Testament. And the New Testament predicts now. We were looking at this at, um, at the lunch club on Wednesday. And when you watch the news, I just think everything is falling apart. And the world doesn't have an answer. But the Bible has an answer. Imagine if Jesus had got it wrong in Luke chapter 21. Let me tell you some of the things that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. This is homework for you. He said that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, that the temple ground would be left with not one stone upon another, that the Jewish people would be scattered throughout the nations until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and then they would be gathered in to the country of Israel again. He said that in the future there would be earthquakes, there would be international wars. He said in Luke 21 that there would be pandemics. He said in Luke 21 that there would be famines and wild weather events and storms, the roaring of the sea. And if he hadn't got all that right, his moral teaching wouldn't carry any weight because he guessed wrong. But he didn't. He got it all right. And he says, when you see all these things, look up because your salvation is near. You see how privileged we are to have the Word of God and to be connected with the living God. Is that a stream that you would want to step away from or one that you would want to sink your roots into? The impact of living in the light of God's Word then is in verse 3 of this psalm. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's not, it's not a picture then of someone occasionally going over to the stream and taking a sip. It's a picture of a tree that is planted by the streams of water with that constant supply of, of nourishment, if you like. And, and that's why it says it's not just about reading the Word, it's about meditating on the Word day and night. It's not just something that interests us. It's not even something that just informs us. The Word of God is something that defines us. It is who we are. It's the, it's the root that allows us to be connected to our Father in heaven. This, this picture of the, the tree planted by streams of water is particularly apt in Israel, where water's scarce and dry trees are fragile and brittle, and a healthy, a healthy tree is one that has a good water supply. And there's so much for us to learn from this simple analogy. The stream is like a picture of the, the endless supply of God's wisdom and His provision and His power to sustain us. And with it, we're strong and unshakable, and without it, we wither and break easily. So let's just open up the analogy a little, little bit more. First of all, it's a picture of God's provision. 
The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not be in want. And verse 3 of this psalm, which talks about whatever they do prospers, um, sometimes interpreted by prosperity gospel proponents as proof that Christians will be materially rich. I don't think that's what it means at all. This is about a far greater richness than money. This is about fulfillment and meaning and value and security and certainty and confidence in the future. And these things are far more valuable than a Hyundai, uh, pronounced Hyundai, apparently. What's more important for me, my car parked in the car park or the fact that I've got a copy of the Bible and that God loves me and cares about me and has given me the resources I need to get through life with this wonderful, thick book. Do you, do you feel well supplied in, in these greater values? Does God give you confidence? Does God give you certainty? Do you feel his love? Do you dip into the Word of God and does it make you cry? Do you experience the presence of God on a daily basis as you open up His Word and you hear His voice talking directly to your heart? And do you have a thirst to know more and more and more? That's what the healthy tree is like. It's not a sip now and again. It's the roots going all the way into the stream. It's a constant supply. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. John 10, verse 10. It's a picture, too, of God's protection. I'm giving away my age here, but it used to be that protesters, instead of saying, what do we want? More money. When do we want it? Now, they used to sing... We shall not, we shall not be moved. Some of you are the same age as me. You're laughing. And you remember, like a tree planted by the waterside, we shall not be moved. This is where we get our stability from. And the further we wander from the Word of God, in terms of the time that we invest in it and the value that we place on it, and the amount that we obey it, the more likely we are to wither and die and become brittle. And the opposite is also true. Alistair always begins our prayer meeting on a, the elders' prayer meeting on a Tuesday morning with a, a scripture. I'll just read you his scripture or part of it from Psalm 112 from this week. Surely the righteous will never be shaken, they will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. Wouldn't it be great if that verse 7 read, they will have no experience of bad news? That would be good. Unfortunately, it's not what the psalm says. It says they will have no fear of bad news. In this world you will have trouble, but fear not, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world.
If we didn't read the Word of God, we wouldn't have that confidence. We wouldn't have that knowledge to be able to sit back and trust in our living and loving Savior. And then it's, it's also, it's a picture of God's proximity. The stream is right there. God is available to us in a constant, wonderful supply. And when we're planted by this stream, we can reach down our roots and draw as much as we like. James, the brother of Jesus, said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He also says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's almost like you get to choose. How much of God do I want in my life? How much am I going to hand over to God and allow him to, to flow into every area of my life? Daniel was a, a Jewish refugee. And he spent most of his life in exile. He was subjected to anti-Semitism and prejudice. His boss was a bully on a grand scale. He was threatened with a violent death. He spent a night in a lion's den. But in all his hardship, he was a man of prayer because he believed that all the resources he needed were in his God. He believed truly that God was a very present help in times of trouble. Listen to what he said, though. This is really interesting. In Daniel chapter 9, he says, When I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, we haven't got time to go into the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, but it's just that little phrase, as soon as you began to pray. A human being begins to pray and heaven leaps into action. Angels have to start doing things. God sends out a decree. Heaven jumps into action at the words of one man on earth. This has always been true. Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 16, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. The stream's right there. It's right beside us, and we can reach down into that stream and draw from it any time we like. God is a very present help in times of trouble. He's right there and his angels are at his beck and call. I was fascinated by that expression, beck and call. It's, uh, it's actually a mispronunciation. It used to be beckon 
call, not beck and call. God can just call his angels and send them into action as we pray. Just in passing, the Bible is very clear that no believer's prayer ever goes unheard. That's quite an important doctrine because from our side of heaven, it sometimes feels that way. You go to the Lord with your request and suddenly nothing happens. And you think, well, you know, in the Bible, we've got all these wonderful answers to prayer and God seems to part the Red Sea for people. I'd like him to part the Red Sea for me. And sometimes it feels as though our prayers are going unheard. They're never unheard. John 9 verse 31 says very, very clearly, if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, him he hears. That's the Lord Jesus saying that. But there's an interesting episode in Mark chapter 11, which I want to share with you just briefly. It says this, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. He said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. The next verse begins, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. So Jesus has just had a conversation with the tree. And the other disciples heard him speak to the tree. And he pronounces over the tree, may you never bear figs again. And nothing happened. They carried on their way and they went into Jerusalem. Nothing happened. A prayer of Jesus, unanswered. On the way back, and this is the last week of Jesus' life, I think this was the Tuesday or something, and on the way back, they see the fig tree and it's withered and died. Interesting. So even for the Lord Jesus, when he prays, God will still have his perfect timing. And had the tree withered and died right there, he would have spent time giving them a lesson. He gave them the lesson on the way back. Some point that day, the tree withered and died. Now, just want to expand that just for a moment. Watch your time. What was that about? Why is that episode in the Bible? Why did Jesus show his disciples not just his power over nature, they'd seen that on the Sea of Galilee. But what about this business of the tree dying? If a biologist had come along and examined the tree and was asked the question, when did that tree start to die? They would have said six months ago. But it wasn't, it was six hours ago. And it shows us that God is not just in command of nature, he's in command of time. In a way that we will never get our heads around. God can stretch time and he can squeeze it up. I don't have any problem with the world being created in six days and looking 13 billion years old. No problem with that. 
God can do whatever he likes. He can take, he can take an Iron Age fisherman out of the first century, move him forward to a time that we haven't even seen yet, show him the battle of Armageddon and pick him up and take him back and put him back in the first century. Don't ask me how. I don't know. I don't understand what God can do. But with him, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. He is utterly in charge of everything. Wouldn't you want, with that sort of power, wouldn't you want to be next to the stream? Why would you ever step away from the stream? And he's right beside you. But it's important that we understand that he is not at your beck and call. We comply with his will rather than him complying with ours. That's so important. And he knows what's best for us. Verse 6 says, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. i just finish with this. Uh, we've run out of time, but that's the Psalms for you. There's a judgment day coming. And all the successes of the world will count for absolutely nothing on that day of judgment. What will count is, did you live by the stream? Did you soak up the word of God? Did you let the values and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ define you? Or were you amongst the mockers who had the safety in numbers? Because they will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. We're going to stand in the assembly of the righteous one day. It's, it's overwhelming to think of that there's coming a day when we'll be standing in heaven while people are separated off to go to a lost eternity and we will be separated out to go to an eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing his glory. And right now, we can't get our heads around that. But there are people who, even a year ago, were sitting in these same seats. And I can see their faces. And now they're looking on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's our priority? What's the most important thing that we need to do? We need to live by the stream. We need to be stable and strong and healthy on a spiritual level and not be diverted at all by what the majority might teach or think, but have be grounded in the Word of God. I'll leave you with Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Read it. Meditate on it. Let it define your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we confess that because it's so important, it's the hardest book for us to pick up. We know, Lord, that Satan doesn't want us to learn it. He doesn't want us to meditate on it. He doesn't want us to live by it. But help us, Lord, to, to set that aside and to to love and value your word that we might live by the stream.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.